Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of Indiana Lawyer and your host. Thanks for joining us. Well, it looks like we're heading into the end of the year rush because our inboxes have been flooded lately with news updates. We'll bring you the highlights in today's episode before we bring on a very special guest for our extended interview. Stick around to find out who it is. So let's get started. Today is Wednesday, October 19th, 2022, and these are your headlines. To kick us off, here's Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington with the latest on the litigation surrounding Indiana's new near-total abortion ban, which still is enjoined. Thanks, Jordan. We've been telling you for months now that Indiana's abortion landscape has been almost constantly changing. But now, it looks like things will stay the same, at least until the new year. Here's a quick recap. In August, Indiana enacted an abortion ban with limited exceptions for rape, incest, the health of the mother, or a fatal fetal anomaly. In September, a special judge in Monroe County enjoined that law. And now in October, the Indiana Supreme Court has agreed to hear the abortion lawsuit, but not until January. The justices granted emergency transfer to the abortion case out of Monroe County, which is based on an Indiana constitutional argument. And they set oral arguments for January 12th. That means that between now and at least the start of 2023, Indiana's previous abortion law, which allows abortions up to 20 weeks, remains the law of the land. But the Monroe County case isn't the only challenge to the state's new abortion ban. On October 14th, the Marion Superior Court heard arguments against the ban based on Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Even though there's already an injunction in place from the Monroe County case, the plaintiffs in the Marion County litigation are still seeking an injunction in their case, too. The state, however, says a second injunction is unnecessary. Marion Superior Judge Heather Welch, who is presiding over the abortion case, has set a deadline of October 28th for both sides to file proposed findings of fact. She says she'll then issue a ruling within 30 days of that deadline. That means, once again, that any action on the abortion ban isn't coming in the immediate future. Of course, if anything changes with the timeline of either case, we'll let you know. As always, the best place for the most recent updates is on our website. Back to you, Jordan. Our team will continue to follow each of these cases closely, so check back with us regularly for updates from the trial and appellate courts. Speaking of the appellate courts... IL reporter Katie Stancomb has info for us on the three finalists who are in the running to fill an open spot on the Court of Appeals of Indiana. Katie? Two judges and one attorney have been selected as the three finalists for the most recent opening on the Court of Appeals of Indiana. Governor Eric Holcomb now has 60 days to choose the state's next appellate judge. Hamilton Circuit Judge Paul Felix, Grant Superior Judge Dana Kenworthy and Attorney Carol Joven of the Indianapolis firm Williams & Pyatt were chosen last week from a group of six semifinalists after being interviewed for a second time by the Indiana Judicial Nominating Commission. Felix serves as the judge of the Hamilton Circuit Court and has been in that role since January 2009, presiding over a general jurisdiction court hearing major felony, family, civil, and juvenile cases. Before that, Felix worked as the Carmel City Court judge and served in the Johnson County Prosecutor's Office. Here's what he told the JNC about why he wants the appellate court job. I am eager to serve as your next appellate court judge. I am ready to help with the improvement of the administration of justice, and I want to help every uh, Hoosier citizen life improve. Judge Dana Kenworthy presides over the Grant Superior Court 
where she was elected in 2013 after initially being appointed a judge pro tempore in 2010. Her professional career has also included working in the Grant County Prosecutor's Office, serving as an attorney, and teaching. If she's selected for the appellate court, Kenworthy says she's ready to hit the ground running. I will be here all in to serve. And because I'm a student of history and the law, I know I don't know everything, and I never will. So I will approach this role with humility, never stop learning, and never stop becoming worthy of serving on the Indiana Court of Appeals. Carol Joven, the only non-judge finalist, serves as counsel with Williams & Pyatt in Indianapolis, where she mostly practices civil trial and appellate litigation. Before that, she worked in private practice and in the Indiana Attorney General's office. She also clerked for now senior judge John Baker. Joven said she would bring her passion for appellate practice to the position. Having been a judicial law clerk and having uh, done many appeals and having been uh, involved actively in the appellate practice section of the Indy Bar, uh, I really enjoy appellate work. And the idea of being a court of appeals judge is, is exciting to me because it would give me the chance to do what I love and I think also to really make a positive impact. Check out the October 26th issue of Indiana Lawyer to learn more about the three finalists and what they had to say during their interviews with the JNC. Back to you, Jordan. Thanks, Katie. Like Katie mentioned, Governor Eric Holcomb has about two months to pick the next COA judge. We'll be watching for that announcement, so stay tuned. Now for some news from a higher court, specifically the U.S. Supreme Court. A case out of Indiana is scheduled for arguments before the federal justices next month on the question of whether an individual can bring a private right of action for violations of the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act. Indiana lawyer senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl has been following this case from the start. You may remember from the previous reporting that the Indiana Northern District Court dismissed the lawsuit filed by Ivanka Tolvesky, who sued on behalf of her husband, Georgie. Ivanka sued three defendants, Valparaiso Care and Rehabilitation, where Georgie was patient, the Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County, which owns the facility, and American Senior Communities, which manages the facility. The lawsuit claims the nursing home violated the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, specifically by chemically restraining Georgie for discipline and convenience, and by involuntarily transferring him to another care facility. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals reinstated the case after the district court dismissal, agreeing with the Third and Ninth Circuits that patients can enforce their rights under the federal law. Now, the justices will answer the question once and for all after they hear arguments on November 8th. But the Health and Hospital Corporation's decision to seek Supreme Court review has raised another issue. A recent opinion from Indiana's Public Access Counselor, Luke Britt, found that HHC actually violated the state's open-door law when it filed a cert petition without first getting board approval. Still, Britt acknowledged that at this point, there's little that can be done to enforce the open-door law in this case. But Morgan Daly of the Indiana Statewide Independent Living Council, who filed the public access complaint, says she's still looking at possible legal remedies. You can read all of Marilyn's previous coverage of the Televesky case on our website, and she'll continue to follow it as it goes through the high court. We've got one more lawsuit update for you, this one involving the trio of employment discrimination cases against the Indianapolis Archdiocese. On September 30th, the Indiana Southern District Court tossed the third and final discrimination lawsuit against the Archdiocese filed by a teacher who was fired from a Catholic high school for being in a same-sex marriage. That ruling came in the case filed by Shelley Fitzgerald, a former guidance counselor at Roncalli High School. The ruling in Fitzgerald's case came after two former Catholic high school students, Lynn Starkey and Joshua Payne Elliott, also sued the archdiocese for firing them for being in same-sex relationships. 
Starkey had worked at Roncalli with Fitzgerald while Payne Elliott had been a teacher at Cathedral High School. The decisions in all three cases were essentially the same. The government cannot interfere with church hiring and firing matters. In Fitzgerald and Starkey's federal cases, the ruling was based on the ministerial exception and the finding that they were both church ministers in their roles as guidance counselors. And in Payne Elliott's state case, the ruling was based on the church autonomy doctrine. Starkey had previously announced that she would not appeal the ruling against her, opting instead to move into an advocacy rule. Payne Elliott came to a similar decision earlier this month, releasing a statement saying, quote, I will continue to work to ensure that all persons are treated with dignity and respect and the rights of our LGBTQ neighbors are protected, end quote. But Fitzgerald hasn't decided whether she will appeal, so it's possible that at least one of the cases against the archdiocese will continue. We'll be sure to let you know what comes next in her case. In law school news, the Indiana University Maurer School of Law has a new permanent dean. On October 13th, IU Maurer announced longtime faculty member Christiana Ochoa as the 17th dean in the Bloomington Law School's history. Ochoa, who has served as interim dean since July, will move into the full-time deanship at the Bloomington School, effective November 1st. She is the first person of color and the second woman to be named dean in IU Maurer's history. Additionally, according to IU Maurer, Ochoa is the eighth Latina ever to serve as the dean of a U.S. law school. Ochoa has worked at IU Maurer since 2003 in various leadership and teaching positions. She has served as Associate Vice Provost for Faculty and Academic Affairs, is the founding academic director of the IU Mexico Gateway, and is a founding and current associate director of IU Center for Documentary Research and Practice, among other accomplishments. In the classroom, Ochoa has taught contracts, international law, international business transactions, human rights, and law and development. For more coverage on the selection, visit theindianalawyer.com. Back in the state courts, the Indiana Supreme Court is hitting the road, specifically to a historic opera house in southern Indiana. On October 26th, the justices will hear oral arguments at the Mitchell Opera House in Lawrence County. Usually, about once a year, the court takes its arguments on the road to allow Hoosiers outside of central Indiana to watch its work up close. The historic Opera House will host arguments in the case of Christopher Jerome Harris versus State of Indiana, a criminal case concerning a habitual offender enhancement. Anyone can watch the arguments in person, but seating is on a first-come, first-served basis. The court is already expecting about 200 high school students to be there. The arguments in the Harris case will begin at 10 a.m. Full details are available at courts.in.gov. To wrap up today's headlines, let's send it back to Katie for a preview of a story that will be of interest to a lot of people statewide. More than 900 community leaders from all 92 Indiana counties will gather in Indianapolis this week to talk about a critical concern plaguing Hoosiers and the criminal justice system, mental health. Local judges, prosecutors, court staff, law enforcement, probation officers, county counselors and commissioners, and mental health providers will convene Friday at the Indianapolis Convention Center to talk about how to deal with the mental health growing crisis during the 2022 Mental Health Summit. The summit aims to help those stakeholders collaborate in their efforts to more effectively respond to the needs of court-involved Hoosiers who have mental health illnesses. Each team is made up of community leaders serving on their local Justice Reinvestment Advisory Councils, known as JRACs, which were created in 2021 after Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb signed House Enrolled Act 1068 into law. According to Indiana Supreme Court Justice Christopher Goff, the JRAC statute creates a framework to convene regular meetings and reviews of systematic practices among local criminal justice stakeholder groups. Led by all three branches of government, 
The summit will offer a variety of sessions on needed resources and strategies in the local mental health continuum of care for communities and court systems. Goff says that the summit's main goal is to provide Hoosiers experiencing a mental health crisis with someone to call, someone to respond, and somewhere to go. We also want to uh, introduce them to this kind of new way to organize and communicate among themselves and with uh, their state-level partners um, who, who uh, you know, share a common goal of fostering public safety and community well-being. The summit will take place from 8.30 a.m. until 4.45 p.m. with a welcome from Chief Justice Loretta Rush, Indiana Senate President Pro Tem Rod Bray, House Speaker Todd Houston, and Indiana's drug czar Doug Huntsinger. Partners of the summit include the Family and Social Services Administration's Division of Mental Health and Addiction, the Indiana Governor's Office, the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council, the Indiana Public Defender Council, the Indiana Supreme Court, and the National Center for State Courts, among others. I'll be there to cover the summit, so stay tuned for my coverage. Thanks again, Katie. Okay, that'll do it for this week's headlines. As always, head over to theindianalawyer.com for everything you need to know about the Hoosier legal profession. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear Olivia and I chat with a very special guest. Talk to you then. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we've changed it up a little bit with our guest rotation. Instead of a current leader in the Indiana legal profession, we have a leader of tomorrow in studio with us today. Uh, today's guest is Brittany Roberts, a 3L at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. Brittany, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So usually uh, we first ask our guests how they got into the law profession. Uh, since you're just kind of getting started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to IU McKinney? Yeah, um, I attended Indiana State University, uh, where I graduated in 2015 with a, a double major in legal studies and Spanish. Um, the legal studies was a political science affiliated there. Um, and then I actually took about five years off after I graduated Indiana State, and I worked in the construction industry. Law school was always something that I thought I might do, but as a first-generation student, taking that step to take on the uh, the commitment of law school was something that I just I needed that time to really think about, and then I uh, took the LSAT twice in 2019 and ended up uh, enrolling in IU McKinney uh, shortly thereafter. So you're a certified legal intern at Manning Law Office and at the Civil Practice Clinic at the law school, right? Correct. Okay. So two part question: Tell us what it means to be a, a certified legal intern, and then also kind of what you've gotten out of those experiences. So to be a certified legal intern, you have to have completed 45 credits of law school and be in good standing at an accredited law school in Indiana. It goes through the Indiana uh, State Bar just as uh, when we when we take the bar and become a licensed attorney. 
when you're certified, you can actually uh, practice in court and take on a little bit more responsibility under a supervised attorney. So that just is a fancy way of saying <laughs> that I can actually go and uh, participate in the court proceedings and get some of that practice as a student. So far uh, with Manning Law Office, I have been able to participate uh, limited a limited amount in court, depending on my schedule. Um, and it has been great to get in front of actual judges and uh, be able to participate in those court proceedings, get some of those jitters out yeah. that come with uh, being on the spot for the first time. It has helped me tremendously with school to know that you know I can get out there, I can get involved, I can do the work. Um, specifically with the civil practice clinic, that has helped a lot with client counseling. Mm-hmm. As uh, we meet uh, through a partnership with a community organization, we meet with their uh, employees and their references uh, to our clinic or the referrals, I guess, to our clinic. And um, I've been able to interview with clients one-on-one. Um, we specifically do expungements. So mm. it's uh, it's some research into their background, uh, listening to their story, because usually they just want to be heard, and sure. then making the determination of whether or not they're eligible to get their records cleared. So, And through those experiences, have you found a, an area of law in particular you think you might be interested in? Yeah, I as of right now, um, I'm leaning heavily towards criminal defense and family law. And I, I try to fight the criminal defense aspect for a while, but I know that's where my heart lies. And sure. it's it's the area that I'm most interested in as of now. Through the clinic, you went, did you go before the Court of Appeals? Is that right? Yes. So hmm. um, the Civil Practice Clinic at McKinney wrote an amicus curiae brief to, on an expungement matter that was being appealed. Um, we actually got reached out to from um, the attorneys working on the case. Uh, and they're like, hey, you know, is this something that you guys are interested in? And we did a little more research and, and we found that that case in particular could, in fact, impact our clients in a big way. It had a lot to do with um, eligibility and which part of the code you would actually petition under. So um, myself, along with other clinic members, in particular, um, another clinic member, Ms. Crone, she uh, is a recent graduate just past the bar. So shout out to to Anna. Um, (laughs) She actually got to go and do the argument in front of the Court of Appeals for the amicus time that we shared with with the appellant on that. So it it was great to be a part of that. Of course, um, arguing in front of the Court of Appeals would have been great uh, experience, but I was was in no way way ready to do that. And Anna was really the mastermind behind all of that. You know, some of the information you sent me before you came in, um, I know this past summer you were chosen as the Jerome and Frank Legal Services Organization fellow, Summer <laughs> Fellowship at Yale Law School. Uh, I believe uh, as part of that work, um, you worked at the school's uh, Veterans Legal Services Clinic. Um, can you elaborate on kind of what that all entailed? Yes. So uh, actually, my clinic director, Professor Hagen at McKinney, uh, she had gotten the uh, opportunity sent to her through a a mailing list. So she forwarded that on to me. So basically, at Yale, they operate clinics just like McKinney does. Theirs is on a, I would say, a larger scale due to uh, being who they are, uh, you know, the the number one law school in the country, uh, respectively. So they operate the Jerome and Frank Legal Services Organization much like a law firm would be uh, organized and operated. 
And so I I applied and I, I did the interview. And then when I got accepted as a position there, that was kind of a shock. I was, wasn't expecting to even get the interview. But their veterans clinic, their veterans legal services clinic is the one that I selected to be a part of um, for the summer. And it, it's operated the same way. Uh, there you can be a law student intern as long as you're just enrolled in law school. So their 1L students get involved in clinics much earlier, whereas here in Indiana, you have to be certified. So the clinics at McKinney, you have to wait until you're about halfway done with law school to get involved with those. But the Veterans Clinic was nice. Um, they have they had quite a few ongoing projects. So because they're students that are in the clinics, they don't staff them with students over the summer. And there were some students that still stayed involved if they could. Um, a lot of them were conflicted out because of the places they were working were related to some of the stuff that the clinic worked on. But I did get to work on a few really, really cool projects. And it was a great experience to be out on the East Coast. So tell us about law school during a pandemic. You kind of, I guess you would have started right at the beginning of all the craziness. And so that's kind of all you've known in law school, really. So, I mean, what what's that like? Yeah, I of course, I had no idea that the pandemic was going to happen yeah. when I started <laughs> preparing. Because, I mean, it, it took me about a year, year and a half just to prepare to go back to school. Starting during the pandemic was a weird experience. We had a hybrid format and our uh, section sizes were cut in half. So we were uh, in person a couple days a week and then remotely a couple days a week. And it was definitely a, an adjustment for me. Um, I would I would say that some of the other students that I started with, they had, you know, their last year of undergrad completely thrown off with the pandemic starting around spring break. So things were on rocky grounds. I don't think anyone knew what to expect. But even, even now as a 3L, it's really cool to see the school kind of come back to life. There's a lot more in-person events. There's a lot more networking, a lot more camaraderie within the law school. Most of it, they tried to keep it the same. Um, we would just meet on Zoom, mm. <laughs> really. We use Zoom for everything our first year. But overall, I would say that it has impacted like the learning aspect because the law is not really meant to be learned online. Sure. But our teachers accommodated very well. Um, and with the pivot to taking everything digital, uh, in a in an area of the law which has been kind of behind the curve when it comes to technology yeah. and, and getting <laughs> getting ahead. sure sure um, our professors um, they did great with uh, still being available to us and as a three L everything's back in person operating as normal or whatever the the normal was before because right. <laughs> we didn't get that but they they still have done a great job with utilizing that online format that they've uh, that they did during covid so there's a lot of perks and benefits to that now because when things come up I think they're a lot more accepting and sure. we're able to pivot really quickly and use zoom or canvas or some of the online um, more just to make sure you know sure we're not missing out <laughs> yeah. And so for you, having taken those few years between undergrad and law school, you know, being in a 1L class that I assume is largely students just out of undergrad, you know, what was that like for you kind of being a little older and having kind of a, a little separation from, from the academic world? That was something I was pretty worried about coming yeah. in because law school is a more competitive, intense environment. And when you've been out of school a little bit, you're like, 
getting back into the groove of everything. Um, but I will say they're a lot more older or I guess non-traditional or they say like K through JD or kindergarten oh, through JD. Yeah. Um, there are a lot more non-traditional students in law school than you than you would expect. It's it's weird because you're in this kind of like bubble in law school. So we do, I don't really think of the age difference so difference so much because I've created some really good friendships and relationships with you know some of the younger students sure. in our grade. But also um, I have gotten that that aspect of, you know, reaching out and trying to make those connections with the older students as well. I think it was more so the intimidating factor going in. (laughs) Yeah. I know you're involved in a few different organizations at McKinney, uh, but we want to specifically touch on the Women's Caucus, of which you are a member and former executive board fundraising chair. So why are you passionate about the caucus and its mission? So the Women's Caucus at IU McKinney is a great organization. Um, It's focused on creating uh, positive relationships and um, networking with women in the law. Specifically, I I really enjoyed um, getting to know some of the other women that I go to law school with. There's some pretty cool, pretty cool up and coming lawyers that have just interests that are different than mine. And through that, I've I've participated in the mentor program the last two years. So I've had a few different mentees and um, having that, just being able to build those relationships with other women in the law is really important. And Women's Caucus, they do an annual fundraiser. It's called the auction. It's their benefit that they do every year. They pick a local organization and we have a silent auction. Um, and then people from the community, law firms, our connections will donate different items to that. And then the organization that is selected to be the beneficiary every year gets that, the amount we raise for them. So it's a good way to get involved in the community and it's a good way to, you know, get involved at McKinney with other women who are also looking to make a difference with within the profession. So setting aside the pandemic, what are some of the challenges of being a law student in, in the year 2022? <laughs> I would say that my challenges are probably different than the average student being a little older. But I, I would say just Keeping up to date with all of the changes and being alive in a in an era where the weirdest things have been happening sure. the last few years with the different civil rights movements we've had, yeah. women's rights, um, the pandemic itself, and then just living more so in a political nature as a country. So I would say that one of the hardest things is just trying to stay on top of everything and things moving so quickly, but also having all of these outside influences to learning the law also. Obviously, a lot of people have opinions about the student loan forgiveness um, plan, That's um, assuming, but assuming it goes through, what will that mean to current law students? I mean, I think that gets lost sometimes. We have a lot of people with all these opinions that they're putting out there, but we're not asking maybe the students as much how that's going to impact them immediately. And, you know, do you have, you know, friends or former classmates who have avoided law school because of the cost? I would speak for myself personally on that matter. Um, Going into debt as a first generation, low income background student who hadn't uh, had much experience with the profession at all, going into the amount of debt Um, that you would need to get through law school was one factor and a reason why I personally took so long to commit to law school. Uh, Having that amount of debt seemed crippling at the time, especially when you come from a family where you don't have the financial support from your parents. 
specifically with the loan forgiveness, I would say that it's attempting to put maybe a Band-Aid on a bullet hole when it comes to uh, higher education in America. And I'm not exactly sure how how we move forward or how we fix the the issues. But for me, um, it would definitely allow, you know, me to get my debt to a place that seems a little more manageable or it at least seems like, you know, okay, so I get like a semester or maybe, you know, it's the 10 to 20 grand, but uh, law school tuition itself is is roughly 30 grand a year. So it does help put towards that, especially. Uh, I, I, I have been lucky enough to receive some um, scholarships and some different things I've applied for, but definitely not enough to have gotten me through the last three years. So kind of to, to wrap us up, kind of a big picture question for, you know, lawyers and judges been practicing in this profession a long time. What should they know about law students and kind of how you and this new group of lawyers view the profession? That's a hard one. Um, I, I guess I would want lawyers and judges that are practicing in the profession to know that students really just want to get involved and, you know, they want these opportunities. So, the opportunity to learn, I think, is huge for for this generation. And I would say that my generation's a little different than the generation I'm in law school with sure. um, <laughs> because of the age gap there. But for me, it's just, you know, having conversations with, uh, you know, the younger generation or the, the new set of lawyers um, coming through and just being open to the ideas for change and, you know, working through that. And I've seen a lot of judges and lawyers, especially with the pandemic, kind of shift their focus when it comes to the profession as well. But I, I don't have a lot of experience or wisdom sure. when it comes to that, I guess. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to our guest, Brittany Roberts of IU McKinney for joining us. Uh, as always, you can catch up on previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast on theindianalawyer.com or via your favorite streaming service.